I'm fed up. I'm fed up with this system and I'm fed up what it does to my staff, uh, me personally, my patients. That was Dr. Adam Friedman, a dermatologist based at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., president and medical director for the Dermacare Access Network and our guest on today's AFPA Patient Access Podcast. I'm Mike Walsh. Dr. Friedman, welcome. Thanks for having me. Let's jump right in here. So say you're on vacation or maybe at a cocktail party and you meet somebody for the first time. You tell them you're a dermatologist. What is the typical response? It's, um, it's a pretty typical response. There's usually uh, interest, intrigue, excitement, and, which is always nice. You know, you always, it's always great to get that kind of feedback you know, when you tell someone what you do. And then the discussion or even hand gestures quickly go towards some discussion or some movement suggestive of whether it be botulinum toxin filler or something yeah. in the cosmetic world. And uh, of course, I, I always disappoint when I tell them that I'm a, a, a medical dermatologist, academic dermatologist. I do very little of that. Um, <laughs> right. You know, that's it. Listen, I, I, I never try to dismiss because I think cosmetic dermatology is certainly an important part of the entire field. And I definitely don't want to underplay the importance of self-confidence, which in turn affects quality of life, which in turn does have a medical, a physically, you know, biological impact on someone's overall health. Uh, but that is such a small part of what we do. You know, the breadth of dermatologic pathology is absolutely extraordinary, uh, which is why there's been so much research and innovation in new diagnostics and therapeutics, because you know, the, the list of disease states is, ex is extraordinarily long and, and extensive. Excellent. So it's not only outsiders who have this misconception that dermatology is just skin deep. Some health insurance companies look at skin conditions as superficial. How does that impact your patient's health plan coverage? It, it does. I think acne is probably the best example of it. You know, this is one of the most common, if not the most common skin disease in the United States and worldwide, affecting millions upon millions of not just teenagers, but actually adults and probably more adults because there are more adults around than teenagers. And the perception is that it is a cosmetic problem, that it is not a medical problem, which is why uh, there, there are so many in hurdles placed by insurance companies uh, with respect to accessing the standard of care, whether it be a topical vitamin A derivative called a retinoid or even uh, our big gun, isotretinoin. And for a disease like acne, while sure, it's not going to kill you, it can cause significant morbidity in terms of physical disfigurement, in terms of scarring and discoloration. But the impact on quality of life, on mentation, on psyche, uh, you know, being such a common disease, I see this all the time, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, teenagers, adults withdrawing from, from their jobs, from their friends, depression, uh, you know, teary-eyed is really more of a common theme than, than more a rarity when it comes to moderate to severe acne. So they think of it lightly, and how does that impact their coverage? Yeah, so, so their approach is they want us as the physicians to use what's been around longer as well as what's cheaper. And that doesn't necessarily equate to what's most effective. Uh, I, I think there's been a real push in the medical community to come up with consensus guidelines, evidence-based guidelines of how to approach both common and rare and rare disease states, uh, but certainly more common ones. 
And when you have a, a body of physicians who are using evidence and suggest uh, a certain medication and insurance companies say, nope, you need to fail this older one first, um, there, there's a real disconnect between the evidence, the science, and just trying to save, save a couple bucks. Yeah, we hear a lot from patients and patient advocates and clinicians like yourself that step therapy is burdensome and not good for delivery of healthcare. But then on the flip side, you'll hear from these health plans and they make the case that it's a necessary step, that it's them being a good steward of limited resources. Who's right here? Yeah, I, I think there it, it's not all or none. You know, I think if you had the right people making those decisions and it was based on the evidence, then I think that would be okay if, if, you know, let's say you had a physician who was reaching for the newest trade repurposed Me Too drug that really is no different from something older, I, I, I would understand that. You know, maybe there's a little, little improvement. There's no evidence, at least in the literature, that suggests that this newer one is better than, you know, an older version of it. I would get that. If it was a dermatologist making these decisions for other dermatologists who understood the disease state, who understood the medications and how they worked, I'd understand that. But often these decisions are not made by physicians in that specialty, are not made by people who know anything about the mechanism of action of the drugs that they're proposing. Because if they did, they would not say use drug X versus drug Y when they have absolutely nothing in common with respect to how they work, um, as well as they don't even know the diseases. And I, I've heard this from my you know really stellar assistants, medical assistants who work tirelessly to get these medications approved, they end up speaking to someone who can't even pronounce the disease state for which we're trying to prescribe the medication they're rejecting. Well said, well said. So in addition to step therapy slash fail first, we hear a lot about prior authorizations. How would you explain the prior authorization process to me if, say, I was one of your patients and it happened to be a requirement for my health plan? I would say it's probably kind of like going on a date as a 15-year-old and you know, you go on that date, which is writing the prescription and you're waiting by the phone, you know, hoping that person will call you back or and you're waiting and you're waiting. And that's, that's really what it is. It's, it, it takes time, you know, once the prescription is submitted and the pharmacy submits it, then the insurance then will come back to us and say whether or not they need prior authorization, which means we have to fill out some paperwork that explains why we want this drug to be used. And the biggest change, you know, you know that it, it's been, the landscape's been changing is the extension of how many drugs really require this now. Medications that have been around for God knows how long, you know, top, common topical steroids or antibiotics that we could easily prescribe and nothing twice about now require prior authorization. And it's, it, it really is not a difficult process. It's just a time-consuming one. The insurance then can take up to you know, 24, even 72 hours to make their decision. So if you think all in all, it easily could be a week or two before uh, the patient even knows that they can get their medication. And all that time, they've been suffering. They've been wondering. They're not really sure what's happening. One thing we've done in my practice is we actually give out an educational handout to every patient that describes this whole process so they don't they're not in the dark and they're not thinking that, well, we forgot to send the prescription in or we don't care. We're, you know, we're, we're doing something else that's, uh, we think is more important that it really, no matter how hard we work, uh, there is a, a time constraint and it does take a long time to get this approval, even if we can get it, which is not a guarantee. So how do these policies like that impact patients who can't advocate for themselves or clinicians who don't take the initiative like you and your staff to go the extra mile? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate being an academic center, and we, we certainly have probably more resources than a solo practitioner. Uh, the answer is unfortunately simple in that they just don't get those medications. 
So along those lines of um, patient support, we know uh, obviously a lot of these prescription treatments for skin conditions can be expensive and Correct. a lot of that expense gets shifted to the patient. Um, some patients use copay cards, right? So basically coupons from the drug manufacturer uh, to help them afford their out-of-pocket costs either before it's covered or if they have a high copay at the pharmacy counter. Um, tell us how the rules about copay coupons are changing as we speak. Yeah, it's pretty sneaky. So with respect to you know, meeting your deductible, the whatever you were paying in, in conjunction with that coupon card uh, would go towards your debu- deductible and deductible in terms of paying, you know, getting to the point where your insurance would cover your prescriptions, um, even if you you know use a coupon card. So whatever you're paying would kind of go towards that. Now, if you're using a coupon card, the insurance company is looking at it almost like cheating. So whatever you're paying plus the coupon card, they don't count that towards your deductible. So you may be getting a chronic medication that you need to take maybe every day, every other week, every week. And at some point, those coupon cards, they expire, they, they run out. And historically, you would probably be very close to being your deductible at this point or somewhere there. You're kind of starting from scratch. You know, you now have to start all over. It's not counting towards that deductible, uh, which can be financially draining for patients, especially with chronic diseases that need these drugs ongoing. A sneaky tactic indeed, and one that's just come to light in the last um, several months, right? Yep, yep. So, all right, let me ask you, when you consider the impact of all these policies of prior authorization, fail first, copay accumulator adjustment programs, is there a particular patient who comes to mind, an instance where you've seen these policies really take a drastic toll on their condition and your ability to provide optimal health care? Yeah, I think there are unfortunately too many examples. Uh, you know, previously I would say with the you know ordering or prescribing biologic therapies, protein-based therapies for chronic inflammatory disease like psoriasis before the patient assistant programs that came out, uh, you know, I, I would have patients that had been on, you know, oral medications that lowered their immune system, affected their liver, or, you know, did uh, light therapy where they come in three times a week to get a light shine on that. None of these worked. And even with that, they still could not get this life-altering medication. That has changed with a lot of these companies recognizing that insurances are really, you know, uh, really placing some burden uh, on these patients and the physicians have these programs that make these drugs more accessible regardless of what the insurance company says. So this kind of lack of foresight, uh, this lack of investment now to prevent problems down the road, I think is something that also needs to change and and a lot of insurance companies need to wake up to the fact that these diseases are chronic and we need to have a long-term game plan. And how do we do that? How do we move the needle on that as a skin and skin condition and dermatology community? Yeah, I, I think it's through advocacy. I think it's what we're doing right here. You know, literally right here with this podcast with DCAN. Um, you know, reaching out to all the stakeholders. It's not just going to be about the physicians. It's got to be about the patients. It has to be members of industry. It has to be members of the government, both you know, local and federal. You know, we need to all come to the table, and it may be as simple as just sharing these stories. Right. It takes a village, right? It does. Absolutely. The patient voice and it needs to come from the patient and the clinicians like yourself. So as you know, at Alliance for Patient Access and within the Dermacare Access Network, as you're acutely aware, we talk a lot about the physician-patient relationship. Obviously, healthcare works best when physicians and patients really know each other, have a relationship that's built on trust and can make mutual informed health decisions. What's the state of the physician-patient relationship today? 
You know, I think it's it's all it's changed over the years, and I think in part it's improved because of technology and access. Uh, you know, even just from five years ago, I emailed with a lot of my patients. Our electronic medical records have a portal where patients can send me messages, and that's actually probably the easiest way to get a hold of me versus trying to call the main line. So having this increased access does engender a better relationship. But I think the relationship has also been strained due to a lot of these impediments placed on uh, us and them by insurance carriers with respect to prior authorizations, failed first, uh, of course, some of these newer ones like copay accumulator programs. And I think very often the patient doesn't know that it's the insurance that's doing this. They actually very often blame us or even worse, they're told that it's our fault. How do you think, what's the one key to galvanizing greater um I guess, collaboration and engagement from the healthcare community, the patient community, even the payer community? Yeah, I, I think we have to make a cordial. You know, I, one thing I've seen is that there's a lot of blame game going on. You know, we blame the, I'm doing it right now, blaming the insurance companies. They blame us. The pharmacists blame us. We blame the pharmacist. Uh, the patient blames our staff. You know, it, it, it really is, is a really vicious cycle. Thank you. All right, my friend, we will end this with a lightning round, and I, I will give you one sentence to answer each of the following questions. Number one, if you weren't a dermatologist, what would you be? Whew, um, I would be a college professor because it would allow me to do a lot of things I love about my job currently, like teach, do research, and engage people on a one-to-one -one level as well as even on a local or national level through conferences. What's the one thing you wish your patients knew about you? Wow, that's a good one. Um, I, th I think I would love them to know that, this sounds kind of lame, but that, you know, I'm, I'm human too, that I, I too am a patient as well as a physician and that I, I feel their pain. And then when they're angry and they're writing me those messages, frustrated that they can't get an appointment to see me or they can't get their medication, that I'm just as angry as them, that I, I really do empathize with them. If you could change one thing about healthcare coverage policies, what would that be? That any type of prior authorization step therapy is dictated by physicians in that specialty and who have proven themselves with a well-established track record that they understand these disease states and the medications before being involved in making those decisions that will clearly impact millions upon millions of patients. Okay. And finally, how do you feel about the Capitals finally winning the Stanley <laughs> Cup? Oh, I'm ecstatic. But I think I'm, I'm ecstatic simply because uh, my son is a diehard hockey fan. He plays ice hockey even at six years old. And, uh, you know, I was never into hockey growing up, but he, he loves the sport more than anything. And the joy on his face uh, when they got to the Stanley Cup and won, um, it was contagious. There's no way I could not be unbelievably excited and invested in, in this team that has really come so far. That's great. Well, thanks, Dr. Friedman. It's really been a pleasure. And again, thanks for your leadership and um, looking forward to uh, continued collaboration. Thank you for all you do, Mike. Really appreciate it.